The New Ghost Stories podcast is supported by Horrified, the website that celebrates and champions British horror, covering films, television, books, fiction and more. You can visit Horrified at horrifiedmagazine.co.uk and find them on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at horrifiedmag. It's difficult to really get a handle on just how fragile life is. That at any time and in any given moment, anything and everything can suddenly change. It's not a comfortable thing to consider, not something you'd want to think about too hard. I mean, if you were to spend time each and every day thinking about all the possibilities, all the numerous ways your life could be turned upside down, damaged irreparably, perhaps even brought to an end, then you'd probably struggle to leave the house. It's frightening to understand that each one of us is like a house of cards. It would take just the slightest push for all that we hold dear to come tumbling down. Life is full of decisive moments. Moments you can't predict. Moments you can't prepare for. Moments that you just won't see coming. Decisive events that will leave you with endless, hopeless what-ifs. What if I'd expected it? What if I'd done things differently? What if I could have stopped it? You can't change the past. And not everything can be rebuilt. One single moment can haunt you for the rest of your life. And not just for all that you've lost, but for the future you once had, that can now never be. My name is David Paul Nixon, and this is the New Ghost Stories podcast where we delve into the new Ghost Stories archive to hear witness accounts of the supernatural. Stories that could be delusions, lies, fantasies, or perhaps even the real thing. Just don't make your mind up until you've listened. There's a particular haunted quality to the British seaside. Those of us of a certain age will remember a time when a trip to the British beach had a very different look and feel. Though it's true that many coastal destinations have kept their charm, and that some have managed to turn the tide, as it were, there are many that have never really recovered from the decline that set in in the 1980s. When travel abroad became more affordable, and home entertainment more readily available, trips to the seaside lost their luster and novelty. It's a sad, strange experience to see those places now. Places which conjure up nostalgic memories of fun and games, Sandcastles and ice cream, donkey rides and rock pool fishing. With the sights we see today, the graffiti-covered walls, grey shop-front shutters, fenced-off piers and syringes in the sand. It's an unpleasant reminder that nothing lasts forever, and that even the things we hold most dear can disappear and decay. The march of time is rarely kind. There could be no better backdrop for today's story. A story of innocence lost, and a future left in ruins. It's a story that struck a particular chord with me because it just so happens that I spent some of my early holiday experiences in the same location. In fact, I grew up not too far from where the subject at the centre of today's story grew up. It's possible we even crossed paths before we ever got to officially meet. I knew and recognised many of the places he spoke of, making it much easier for us to bond and for me to gain his trust not to mention much simpler to verify a great deal of the facts and information he gave me. But this is also one of my more controversial stories, 
there is another side of events that differs greatly to this one. And some have argued that by publishing this story, I am endorsing and promoting a false narrative, that I am giving cover to a guilty man who has never answered for his crimes. This is a difficult and complicated issue. There are a number of new ghost stories which include events that have been investigated by the police, and they saw only natural causes for what my subject claims to be supernatural. Now, I am not a criminal investigator. I cannot speak to whether a crime was committed in this case. No charges were ever filed. And under the principle of innocence until proven guilty, I have given the subject the benefit of the doubt. This stance has angered some people, and I do understand why. When I publish a story, I am clear that by doing so, I believe that, under scrutiny, a subject is telling me the truth as far as they know it. For those who believe otherwise, this amounts to the spreading of a lie, that the subject is using a false narrative to absolve themselves of their crimes, and to convince others of their innocence, and that I am complicit in allowing this to happen. I understand why some believe this, and I sympathise with anyone who has been impacted by criminal acts. But guilty or innocent, each one of us has the right to tell our story and to have it heard. I am presenting only one person's account. It is my view that they believe it to be true. But that is not the same as me claiming that it is true. And if you've been listening to this podcast to this point, you'll know that ultimately I leave it to you, the listener, to make the final judgment. Let's see what you make of this one. This is New Ghost Stories case number 70. And it's called... The Call of the Sea. The following story has been shared under an agreement that respects the right of the subject to remain anonymous. Certain names, dates and locations have been changed to protect that anonymity. Events that feature in this story may be part of the public record. If you believe you recognise any of the places, people or events that feature in this story, I ask that you not reveal any knowledge or information publicly out of respect for the subject's right to remain anonymous. When I think of her, the first thing that comes into my head is her staring out at the sea. Thinking back, that seemed to always be the first place I'd see her, sat atop the high wall just above the beach. I never found out if she meant it like that, whether she meant for me to always find her there, or whether she was just always there, listening and watching the waves, both transfixed and terrified, drawn towards the water but terrified at what she might see beneath the surface. Did she feel it call to her? It's so hard to know what's real anymore, what happened and what didn't. I've romanticised the past. I probably used to meet her in the dining room or at the arcade, perhaps just around the hotel in passing. But that's just how I remember her, looking out to the water, always half in this world, half somewhere else. We used to take all our holidays in Morecambe. Dad was a man of habits, that's how we ended up going there eight years in a row. Before then we'd gone to South Wales and stayed at this caravan park, but for some reason we'd stopped going there. Dad probably fell out with the owners, he had a habit of doing that. Morecambe was where his mum used to take him when he was a boy, so it was still old habits again. This was the late 80s, but the rot had not entirely set in. The year of the British seaside resort was coming to an end, but it wasn't over just yet. I can track the decay back in peeling paint and steel shutters, each year we'd arrive and there would be more paint peeling from the walls, more concrete patches on the Art Deco Midland Hotel. The crazy golf course looking that bit less crazy. More shops closed and encased in metal. 
Even Dad, with his entrenched habits, was beginning to turn against the place in those last few years. If it wasn't for Lily, we'd probably have stopped going. How to describe her? Her hair was black, over long, past her shoulders. She just liked it that way, I think. Her eyes were a deep chestnut, large and expressive. Her skin was white, but not pale or sickly. It had a luminous, vibrant quality. I'd go on to talk about her lips and body, but I think we should keep this sensible. As sensible as possible. Of course, that was how she looked later. When I met her, she would have only been seven or eight. It's hard for me to remember her now as a child. I only remember her as I knew her in those last few years. She always looks like that to me now, whether we're sneaking away to the changing rooms for a snog or building sandcastles on the beach with buckets and spades. I don't remember how we first met. We just became friends with her family. My dad would have met her dad in a pub or something. My dad and her dad, Steve, must have enjoyed drinking together because the following year we were at his hotel, the Bay Star. Quite a big place, really. Five stories, forty-ish rooms. Not the most attractive building, a square, post-war concrete block, but painted a summery green to fit amongst the seafront pastels. My mum always used to tell me that whenever we went anywhere on holiday, I was always guaranteed to come back with a friend. It's always puzzled me how this could be. I hardly had any friends at school. Yet vaguely it seems to be true. I have scattered memories of companions on camping sites and in playgrounds and in amusement arcades. And sure enough, I was quickly friends with Lily. Hard to know when or how. There was a games room for kids at the hotel and there were sometimes other children around to play with. But we'd come up for Potter's Fortnight, which would be earlier in the summer before most schools broke up. So it was usually just me and her at the hotel. And I think her father offered to have me looked after so my parents could spend time together. She was a bit spoilt at that time, I seem to remember. Prone to throwing strops when she didn't get what she wanted. I suppose it's natural she might be that way. Her mother had died a few years before and her father was pretty protective of her. And he ran the place with her grandmother and you know what grandparents are like. Even then she always seemed to have her head in the clouds, always so deep in her own world. That's when she was really bad-tempered when you disrupted her from one of her little dreams. She'd get really aggravated. But that would change as the years went by. She'd mellow or sort of keep the dream going while you were around singing and humming to herself while you were talking to her or out walking with her, as if she wasn't really paying attention to you. And I'd ask her, what are you thinking about? And she'd say something like, I don't know, or nothing in particular. And if I really pressed her, she might say, it was just a feeling, or it was just a moment. It was like she could tune into a different wavelength to the rest of the world and just feel it, live in it. As the years went by, we got on better and I started to look forward to seeing her. It was what I looked forward to about going on holiday. My parents seemed perfectly happy to have me looked after, and by the third year we were going off on excursions to the beach, accompanied by members of the hotel staff who weren't needed for an hour or two. We'd play and build sandcastles, play beach ball, fish amongst the rocks, but we'd never go in the sea. Never go near to the sea. She was terrified of water. The rock pools were fine, but she refused to go even close to the sea or the swimming pool at the hotel. I loved the hotel swimming pool because at that age that was my idea of class. We were at a classy hotel because they had a swimming pool. But Lily didn't like it. She wouldn't even come poolside. It was so strange because she always seemed so fearless. You know what little girls can be like, screaming and crying at anything, but not her. 
I never saw her afraid, not when climbing the rocks, not when riding a bike down the hill. Me, I could get terrified. I was putting on the brakes all the time, but she'd zoom along like nobody's business. She used to terrify the staff at the hotel with her climbing. They'd go blue in the face at her as she scaled the heights of the rocks or the trees. Never afraid of talking to people either. I suppose you just get used to that living at a hotel. I was shy about talking to strangers, but not her. She'd happily talk to anyone. Although she was half in her own world anyway, so she probably didn't really hear them. By the time we entered our teams, we had free reign to roam where we pleased. The summer we turned 13, I remember quite well. I ran down to her from the hotel. She was there, sitting on the stone wall, looking out over the sea as usual. We went that evening to the arcades with a tenor from our parents, which seemed like riches in those days. We had chips down by the pier, what was left of it after the great fire. A seagull came down and lifted a chip right out of her hand. We were so shocked. I went around swinging my coat at the seagulls to frighten them off. I felt so heroic, protecting her from this feathery menace. By that time we were growing up and starting to feel like more than just friends. But it was all still quite innocent. We were allowed out unsupervised. We hired bicycles to roam up and down the promenade and beyond. Spent an afternoon building dams down on the beach. She didn't seem to mind the shallow water running down to the sea, as long as we never went near the wash. We spent an afternoon at Frontierland. Britain's most decrepit theme park. Nothing ever changed there. Same rides, same shows, only more tired and old-looking each year. They used to have this runaway mine train. It was done so all the carts made really sharp, jolting turns, designed to make you feel like you might tip off the tracks. Looking back, perhaps that wasn't intentional. Maybe there really was a risk of someone going over the edge. It's a shopping centre now, I think. No great loss to the world. I never said it, but by then I was really starting to think of her as being like my girlfriend. There was always so much unsaid between us. We'd have these late-night walks along the seafront. She, always in her own world, humming along to her own inner song, and me, just desperate to say to her how I really felt. My parents had already detected that we were becoming more than just friends, and I started to get some very knowing looks from Mum and Dad that made me embarrassed. But it could have been worse. They were hands-off parents, mostly. I was never smothered growing up. Lily's gran, however, was a little more prodding in our relationship and gave more winks and nudges than my folks did. Her dad, on the other hand, he never seemed to really like me. He was never avert in his dislike, but I could tell he wasn't so keen on me, especially as I got older. I suppose any father with a daughter is bound to be the same. That was really the last summer of my childhood. The next year, everything had changed. Although I suppose I hadn't changed that much, she had. She entered her terrible teens and suddenly she wasn't the Lily that I used to know. I came up for the summer expecting it to be just like it was before, but she was so suddenly different. She'd gone all punk. No, not, not punk, grunge, but it was the early 90s. Suddenly she was fashionable and I was still a kid. Some dorky, geeky preteen who wasn't part of the in-crowd. Suddenly, schoolyard politics were here in Morecambe too. She wasn't there on the wall looking to the sea that year when I went looking for her. She was off with her friends. It wasn't like she hadn't had friends in all those years I'd known her. But for those two weeks, she spent most of her time with me. We hardly ever had others join us. Now she had a gang. Three or four girls and a few guys. When she was nowhere to be found that first day, her grand directed me to where I could find her. 
She reached that age of growing up where you find yourself hanging around shops. She was by a late night spa with her new friends, pooling money together to try and buy cigarettes, and then moving on to the next shop when they were turned away. I was a nervous weirdo to them. I looked so square in my old jacket and jumper compared to their torn jeans and band t-shirts. She talked to me a little, but it's clear that I was now an embarrassment. She was so desperate to fit in and in particular wanted the attention of this tall guy with a long face and spiky hair. I sort of hung around with them, not saying very much. They were too busy talking school gossip and listening to tapes on their Walkmans, pushing their heads together to hear the music on shared headphones. I didn't really know any of the bands. I never really paid much attention to music back then. All I had was cassette tapes of old Dad's Army episodes my dad had given me. I would have thought she was an imposter, a completely different girl if it wasn't for the walk home. I went with her back to the hotel and for a brief while she was that same girl with her head in the clouds, humming along to the tune she only knew. In the past I'd found it endearing, but now it seemed like a barrier. I was dejected and disappointed. The girl I thought I loved was someone else now. The rest of the holiday I hardly saw her. She actively avoided me. I was embarrassing to her. I used to think of us both as outsiders together, but she was on the inside now. It was just me still looking in. I was so upset I moped that fortnight away. I spent virtually the whole time stuck with my parents, and they were getting pretty sick of my whining and complaining. But honestly, after six years, what were we exactly going to discover in Morecambe that was that new? All the same places, all the same attractions. I was getting pretty sick of it. The only thing I wanted was no longer within reach. I think Mum was probably tired of it too, but my father wasn't one for change. Like all truly stubborn people, he'd dig his heels in for no good reason and refuse to accept it. That's one reason why they divorced in the end. He became so inflexible that he wasn't just stuck in a rut, he was lost in one. We were good friends with the hotel staff by this time, and Lily's grandmother and I always seemed to get on. She was annoyed that Lily had been so mean to me. I don't think she liked Lily's new crowd very much, but I suppose it was understandable that parents might get a bit concerned when you start listening to Nirvana and Happy Mondays and start dressing like you don't wash anymore. By then she was becoming more of a parent to Lily. Her father was drinking more and more. The business was struggling and his alcoholism was getting worse, and his behaviour was rubbing guests up the wrong way, my dad included. But Lily's grandmother, I think she must have told her off, because on the last night we were there, she invited me to go to the cinema with her. I think she probably planned to go anyway. There were a bunch of her other friends there, she was probably just being charitable. We went to see Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, even though none of them seemed bothered about seeing it. Generation X types, everything was so lame. They were all older than us too. I hadn't noticed it before, but this gang of hers was a few years ahead can't stand to watch that movie now, but at the time I thought it was pretty cool. The guys we went with spent most of the time sniggering about it and making jokes, annoying everyone in the auditorium. I was more annoyed by the spiky hair guy's arms around Lily. It was hard to follow the film and I wished I'd stayed at the hotel. Most of the gang snuck out more than halfway through, leaving me with Lily and Spiky. Then just as the film reached the end, they too snuck down the fire exit at the bottom of the auditorium and bolted. They ditched me as well. I stayed until the end and then moped my way out of there. 
hurt and feeling betrayed, I planned in my head how I would say to my parents that we should stop coming to Morecambe, that it was a miserable and boring place and we should find somewhere else to go on our holidays. But no sooner had I walked a few feet from the front entrance did I hear Lily's voice again. She shouted my name, or at least she'd tried to. It had been cut off. She'd been stopped from shouting abruptly. I turned my head and swore I saw someone disappear from view, hiding behind a wall just down a driveway leading behind the cinema. The drive led to a small car park for employees and deliveries. I knew I hadn't imagined hearing her, and although it was raining, I could hear movement, the scrape of heels on the ground. I started off slowly, but ran as I realised there was a struggle going on. Just as I turned the corner, I spotted them tucked behind a metal skip bin next to the ramp to the fire escape. I saw spiky hair pinning Lily to the wall with one hand clamped over her mouth, and the other stopping her body from sliding from under his, telling her to be quiet. He saw me and was about to tell me to back off, but before he did, I did something to this day I can't imagine myself doing. I went right up to him and lamped him one right in the chops. I think he was as surprised as I was. He fell back and landed against the ramp railing. I didn't know what to do then, but I only paused for a second before I decided the safest thing to do was kick him in the balls and leg it. Her top was undone and her bra was unfastened. After we'd run down the street and around a corner, we stopped to get her properly dressed. She was cold and shivering. She left a coat there behind the theatre. Neither of us wanted to go back for it. She cried. I put her head on my shoulder and held it there for as long as she wanted. I gave her my coat and took being soaked on the way home like a gentleman. We walked back home along the seafront, just like the old days. Only this time she wasn't quiet because she was in her own world, because she didn't want to talk about what had just happened. I didn't know what to say either, so we walked back in silence. We got back to the hotel and I asked her if she was going to be okay. She nodded and thanked me for lending her my coat, which she gave back to me. After another awkward moment of quiet, she asked if I was going tomorrow. I said yes, and then she said goodbye, and that she would see me again next year, probably. We waved sheepishly to each other and parted. It felt like we should have hugged or said something more meaningful, but neither of us could think of anything to say. As I turned to walk away, I heard her call my name again. I turned back, and suddenly she was there in front of me. She kissed me. It was my first kiss. I don't want to get cheesy, but it was like... It was like moving to Technicolor. I felt like I drifted inches up off the floor and didn't come down again for about an hour. She didn't even say a word. She just kissed me and went swiftly through the door to her room. As we packed to leave that year, all I wanted to do was stay. Lily didn't seem to be around that morning and was so desperate to find her and say how much I didn't want to go. But my father wasn't going to let me interrupt his schedule, and I couldn't let him know how desperate I was for us to stay longer, because of youthful embarrassment. We packed up, paid and left. But just as we were leaving, I got one final glimpse. She was there, climbing the stairs to the hotel with some shopping. She waved to us as we left, and I waved back. I carried that image with me for a hundred miles home, with a tear in my eye. The thought that I wouldn't see her now for a whole twelve months hurt. It hurt so bad. It dug right into my soul and made my chest ache. But what could I do? She was forever on my mind for the rest of the summer and into the new school term. I wanted her. I wanted her to be mine. But how could I do it? I wouldn't see her again for a year. How could I stop someone else from making a move on her during that time? 
What if Spiky Hair apologised and weaseled his way back into her heart? I didn't think she was that foolish, but who knew? I sometimes wondered if I really knew her at all. I only saw her for two weeks a year. I decided after much fretting and worrying that I would write to her. It took weeks, I had to pluck up the courage to do it and I had to decide what to write. Then it took weeks to write it, draft, redraft, tear up, throw away, start again. It was months before I had something ready to post, but I didn't want my parents to know, so it took me ages to find the address of the hotel. And there was no internet then, I had to visit the library to find a listing and address for the hotel. It was almost the end of October by the time I actually posted the letter. I'm not even sure what I did put in the letter. Something probably cringeworthy about longing and wanting to see her every day. I didn't want to put her off by going too far, but I tried in a clumsy way to tell her just how much I loved her, and how I hated that it would be so many months before I would see her again. Most importantly, I wanted to know how she felt about me, and whether she cared and thought about me as I thought about her. I almost chickened out before I sent it, I was so afraid of rejection. I'd forgotten how dismissive she had been of me during those two weeks, how she'd been part of a new crowd that would look down on someone as terribly unfashionable and gawky as me. Weeks passed, then months. Getting an answer was frightening enough, getting no answer was worse. By the time Christmas approached, the chance of getting a response looked bleak, and I had always resigned myself to the fact that we would never be together. My parents' marriage was falling apart by then. They were barely on speaking terms. Normally my aunt and uncle and cousins would come over and we'd spend Christmas together. But my cousin Aaron had already suggested that they might stay away that year, that my parents' arguments had already almost spoilt it last year. There would have to be a reckoning between them before the big day. I made myself almost sick with worry, not knowing when the explosion might come. And then the letter came. It was just as school was breaking up, and I was still wary about what might happen at Christmas. I wish I still had that letter. It was just... I was so unhappy and so low, and it was exactly what I needed. It brought me comfort and hope and a glimpse of happiness. Lily thanked me for writing to her. She was happy to receive my letter, which had shone some light on a dark time. Her handwriting was so beautiful, so elegant, it practically danced across the page. I'd never realised she was such a gifted writer. It was as if for the first time we were really talking. All the awkwardness, the half-gazes, the things unsaid during those brief visits. Suddenly we were communicating honestly, fully, completely. Though the letter gave me hope, it was far from happy reading. Her father had become worse. He was drinking far too much and now he had suffered from a small stroke, followed by a serious fall down some stairs, breaking his leg. He'd spent many weeks in hospital and she'd worried that he might die. She'd already lost her mother and was terrified of losing him too. He was home now, but needed constant care as he was still out of sorts and not fit to run the hotel. She was having to help out more and she was struggling with her schoolwork, but was managing to get through it as the hotel was not busy. But this too was a problem. Her gran and cousins were afraid because they just weren't getting enough guests on season to cope with the quiet off-season. After going through all her problems, she finally came to my letter and to my utter excitement she said she often thought of me too. She was sorry for how she had been when I last visited. She had been fighting with her father and had tried to make new friends and tried to be like them, but realised it was a mistake and that she would never really fit in with them. She was sorry she had been cruel to me because really we were more alike than she was with any of them, and that in fact was one of the things she liked best about me, that she could just be herself and didn't need to worry about what anyone else would think. 
She was sorry that we couldn't see each other more often, but now more than ever she had little time to herself, having to look after the hotel and do her coursework. We were both heading towards GCSEs and the pressure was on. She said she would look forward to me writing again and I duly started on a new letter that very night. We became confidants for each other, each revealing our true and honest thoughts through our letters. I wrote of my worries about my parents, how they were apparently starting afresh, giving their marriage one last chance and my doubts that they could ever really change things, my dad especially. She wrote of her father's loneliness and his struggle with drinking. She thought he had never gotten over her mother's death and that he blamed himself for it, and that it had stopped him from ever remarrying. She worried too he might sink deeper into depression because of the years he'd put into the hotel. That summer would be decisive. If it did not make money, it would not, in her opinion, survive another year. We wrote to each other each month. By Easter a great plot had been hatched, our exams were around the corner, but after that we would have months before we had to start college. What if I were to come to Morecambe to work for her at the hotel? We could spend the whole summer together. I could live there at the hotel, get paid a small amount as they couldn't afford much, but it would help her father and most importantly we could be together. I floated the idea to my parents and they said yes. As long as they revised hard they were all for it. Her father gave the go-ahead too, although I bet he needed some convincing. So I revised hard and I did my best. My parents were on their best behaviour for my benefit, although you don't need raised voices to be affected by that kind of tension. I couldn't wait to get away and within a few days of my last exam ending I was on a bus up to Morecambe. My parents were going to join me mid-August, as was our tradition now that Potter's holidays were no longer observed. I worried a great deal on the way there, self-conscious and nervous as always. I knew her now better than I'd ever known her, but still seeing somebody for only a few weeks every year made it difficult. Everything had changed so much, we weren't just occasional friends anymore, we were something more. Both almost sixteen now, there was pressure and my mind was not unexpectedly on sex although that still seemed like a far-off possibility. My friends at school, what few of them there were, had spent the last few weeks joking about it, teasing me about it. I tried not to listen, but I had high hopes and expectations, naturally. But I was more nervous than anything, and the fact that both of us were young for our school year, both with our birthdays in mid to late August, meant that I needn't worry until the legal age had been reached. I didn't think either of us wanted to break the law, I had most of the summer to work myself into her affections and make us both ready. For the second year running, she was not there at the seafront, staring out to the sea. She was a little closer to home, cleaning some of the patio furniture on the hotel terrace. It was just a long, lingering hug when I got there. No kiss, but I wasn't disappointed. The smell of her and the warmth of her smile and the sweet timbre of her voice was enough. She showed me to my room. All staff rooms were on the ground floor. It was a touch dark because the room was just below ground level. It was clad in plasticky fake wood panelling, giving it a boxy quality. It wasn't very big, but I was just glad to be there. I didn't arrive till late in the evening, but dinner was still being served in the restaurant and I had a very nice fish and chips. That evening we took a long walk along the seafront. I realised then how much she'd grown up. She looked so mature, so adult all of a sudden. She was more confident, more assured, more... I don't know, she looked taller, I think. I remember thinking that she'd grown. Perhaps that was just her standing on her own two feet now, all the responsibility had changed her. 
She was more with me than ever before, not drifting onto her own wavelength like the old days, no long mysterious gazes at the sea. But she was still the girl I had known, all smiles and knowing glances. We ducked into a bus shelter on the way, one of those old concrete shed types. We had our first proper snog in there. It was worth the wait. This first couple of weeks were perfect. We were inseparable, even the early morning starts weren't so bad, laying the breakfast tables at eight, serving, clearing and washing up until eleven, and then cleaning the rooms and making the beds. That was the best time. We were alone together in bedrooms. No prying eyes, just us together enjoying each other's company and each other's bodies. We had to be careful, though. Her father was suspicious and would come looking for us if we were away too long. He was on his feet again and working, although he did nothing very physical. He was more bad-tempered now than ever. He wasn't allowed to drink, at least, although that didn't exactly make him any cheerier. Both Lily and her gran were determined to keep him away from the front desk where his attitude might do harm. Bookings were okay, but not stellar. They couldn't afford to make a bad impression on potential guests. Everyone who seemed to stay there was elderly. There were hardly any young guests. If the commercial decline of the seaside didn't threaten the business, the march of time certainly did. They really were the best times I think I ever had in my life. We had each other, we had some money to spend. We worked during the day and had the evenings to ourselves. Neither of us, strictly speaking, were old enough to work, so we didn't work when alcohol was being served in the restaurant, just in case there should ever be any trouble about it. The nights were spent in the arcades, at the cinema, the bowling alley, or in the cheap bingo halls, trying our best to win tacky souvenirs or knock-off toys. By then things were getting pretty bleak along the seafront. There were more closed businesses than open ones, and the walls with appealing paint now had coatings of graffiti and cheap pasted-on posters advertising club nights and local DJs. It didn't matter to us, though. Those long walks along the promenade, through the parks and gardens, or along the beach, those were my favourite things. They were when we were closest, when we were at our most happy and in love and they always held the promise of an illicit detour on a park bench, in a phone box, or on the beach. Everything was so perfect. Trust me to throw a spanner in the works. Sometimes I don't think I know how to be happy. The thing was, she was my boss, and after a while, I started to get frustrated, maybe emasculated, just a little bit. She worked hard to keep that place running, and sometimes I was pratting around too much and she'd get on at me. It sounds so stupid, but I get wound up. It was supposed to be a holiday for me, but it was seven days a week, no time off. It got busier as the schools broke up and a father couldn't or wouldn't hire new staff. So there was so much to do and she got stressed and started to get impatient. And everything started to become less fun and, well, more like work. I admit I could be a bit lazy sometimes or slack off a bit. And she'd get annoyed and sometimes just tell me off. And sometimes in front of others and that chided me and got on my nerves. This was the girl who used to get lost walking in a straight line and now she was telling me off for not paying enough attention. And she was so confident now. She really could talk to anyone, not like me. I still fidgeted and didn't know how to react if a guest started to get annoyed with their room or their breakfast. And guys would flirt with her. We didn't have many younger guests, but she was a good-looking girl and guys noticed that. I suppose I felt a bit threatened. No guy likes to feel weak in front of their girlfriend or to feel that they're weaker than their partner. It was pathetic, but I let my lack of self-esteem get the better of me. One weekend, I was asked to clean the pool. I had to go around it with a big fishing net and scoop out all the leaves. 
She came looking for me and stood by the patio doors and asked me to help her put away the food delivery that was due in the afternoon. While she was giving me her instructions, I noticed that she was stood in the doorway, that she hadn't set foot on the poolside tiles. It suddenly occurred to me she was still afraid of the water. I pretended I couldn't hear her as she spoke. She spoke louder, but I still couldn't hear her, so I told her to come closer. She hesitated but came out onto the tiles, slowly, arms folded. She told me what she wanted, but I think she noticed the slight smirk on my face. She knew that I remembered her fear. If we had any free time during the day, it would be on a Tuesday, after guests had been checked out from the weekend and preparations for new guests had been completed. We're still being a bit ratty to each other. We've been spending too much time together. So when she asked me what I wanted to do that afternoon, I said I wouldn't mind having a swim. She wasn't keen on the idea. She said her father wouldn't like us swimming when there were guests at the hotel. But there weren't that many, the place was quiet and her dad was away all day. So why would he care? I asked her if she was still afraid of water. She denied it. Neither of us wanted to admit weakness or fault. So I said she should come out with me and take a dip. It would be quiet and relaxing, not like the beach, which she suggested, but I said would be too noisy and too crowded. So I went to the pool in the afternoon and waited for her. After I'd been swimming for more than half an hour, she turned up in shorts and a t-shirt. She had it in mind that she would relax in one of the lounges and maybe read. But I chided her. Why not come in for a swim? She said she didn't feel like it. I asked her again. You're not afraid, are you? She said again she wasn't. But she wasn't a good liar and I knew the truth. There's nothing to be afraid of, I said. It was just like being in a large bath which it was. The water was shallow. You'd have to be a midget with weak legs to drown in that pool. She said again that she wasn't afraid and that she just didn't feel like it. I got out of the pool and walked over to her. Just a dip, a quick dip, to show me that she wasn't afraid. I don't know why I had to tease her so badly. I just felt good being in control. And it was just water after all, nothing wrong or difficult about having a swim. You didn't even need to swim in a pool so shallow. She said no and got quite aggressive. I put my arms around her and started to move towards the pool's edge. She started to shout and scream, but I didn't take her seriously. I moved my weight over to one foot and let us both topple into the water. I didn't realise. I thought, at least for a moment, that I was doing her a favour, showing her that there was nothing to be afraid of. Christ, like there was anything noble about what I was doing to her, tormenting her, wrestling back control like that. She hit the water and screamed. She became hysterical. Her face was panic-stricken. She howled between breaths. She looked like she was drowning even though she was swimming. I assumed she couldn't and that she'd never been in water, but she could swim and as I tried to help her, put my arms around her, she pushed me sharply away. She swam frantically to the side and hoisted herself onto the tiles, slipping on the way and bashing her elbow on the pool's edge. She lay on the tiles, gasping for air like she was hyperventilating. I traumatised her. I climbed out quickly and went to her. Her eyes were wide open, her mouth desperately drawing in air. She was shivering, lying on her side like a wounded animal. People from the hotel started to gather around us. I tried to comfort Lily, but she kept pushing me away. Her grandmother came out. I passed her my towel to wrap her in. I didn't know, I protested. I didn't know this would happen. The grandmother was furious with me. With the help of some of the staff, they carried her inside. They didn't know whether to call her a doctor or not. The grand didn't think so. She just had a shock and she'd be all right. They left me standing there feeling like the biggest bastard in the world. And then he showed up. I was stood there face to face with her father. He hadn't left that afternoon at all. He went for me, 
put both his hands around my neck to throttle me. I couldn't stop him. He was in a frenzy. I couldn't move his hands from around my throat. I was lucky any of the staff noticed they were so busy fussing over Lily. It took three people to get him off me. He let go and I went crashing back over a lounger, hitting my head on the tiles. I'll kill you, he shrieked at me. You won't take her away from me. She's mine. She'll never have her. She'll never get her hands on her. I was terrified, frightened out of my wits. I swear to you without exaggerating that he would have killed me. He was out of control. If those people had not been there, he would have strangled me. I know it. I was so frightened, I just ran. I just took off and found myself running along the beach for hours. I sat amongst the rocks, hating myself, hating her father, but thinking I might have deserved it. What had I done to her? I felt like smashing my brains out against the rocks. She was the most important thing in my life, the only thing I had, the only thing I loved. The thought that I'd harmed her, hurt her, it made me feel like taking a knife to myself, cutting my body, ripping out great chunks of flesh as penance for doing such a vile thing. I was out there for hours, not knowing what to do. I was so scared to go back, I didn't know what I would find. I was so scared Lily might hate me that I'd done her great harm, that I'd really hurt her. And I was scared that her father might kill me, that this time he'd have his chance and would honestly murder me. I had to go back. I only had my swimming shorts on. By that time it was dark and I was utterly freezing. I must have looked a real sight going into the front entrance, dressed at night in my shorts, shivering. Her grandmother was on the front desk. She looked at me with a mixture of disapproval and pity. Like a pet that's knocked over a priceless vase. Foolish but innocent. In fact, after a moment she started to laugh. I did look a right state. She took me to the kitchen where she gave me a hot drink and reunited me with my clothes. I told her how sorry I was, but she wasn't quite forgiving. She said I should have known better, especially considering how her mother had died. This was news to me. As far as I knew, her mother had died of illness. Her grandmother cursed herself, realising Lily had deliberately withheld the truth. I would have probed her more, but then Lily came in. Her grandmother left us, and I quickly broke down into tears. I felt like such a miserable, spiteful monster. She hugged me and told me that it was all right, that she was fine, she was okay. She had had a bad shock, but she was fine now. She forgave me, which only served to make me feel more ashamed. We went out walking along the waterfront and down by the beach. She wanted to tell me the truth, something she had never talked about before. The reason for her fear of water, how her mother had died. Her mother had been unwell, that was true. She suffered badly from depression and after Lily was born even more so. She was on and off tablets for most of Lily's childhood. She would have bad spells where she would unaccountably become hysterical and unhappy and break down to tears, and the pressures of running the hotel would often be too much for her. When her episodes became worse and more frequent, her doctor recommended changing her medication, because after so many years her current medicine might no longer be effective. But depression medication is habit-forming. Coming off it was no easy task, and adapting to new pills was no easy thing either. Her mother lost all her energy, became very tired all the time. To help her, her father hired more staff, so she wouldn't be needed to work at the hotel at all. This was good for a while, but it produced an unexpected new side effect. Her mother became jealous, deadly jealous, and resentful. He was spending more time looking after the hotel than he was with her. She began to feel like the hotel was more important than her. They would have these blazing rows. She started to hate him talking to other women. Whether they were guests or members of staff, they were all a threat. It was weeks before she was herself again. During this time, she would never let Lily out of her sight. Whatever else was happening, she could feel happy together with Lily. 
For a while it all seemed fine. Her mother seemed back to normal and was helping her father run the hotel again. Then one afternoon they were supposed to go to a wedding party. It was out of town at another hotel, a cliffside place near the coast by a small secluded beach. Her parents had been arguing that morning and no one was in a very good mood when they arrived at the reception. No one is sure exactly what happened that day. It's thought that maybe Lily's mother saw her father talking and laughing with another woman, and that she might have got jealous. Whatever the reason, she took Lily out of the reception after only an hour or so and threw her in the back of the car. She then drove the car down the hillside towards a small private jetty, and drove the car off the end and into the water with Lily still on the back seat. She could still remember what happened vividly. Water started to pour in through the door. She screamed, tried to get her mum to let her out. But her mother wanted her to stay, told her to sit still and stay quiet. It was a miracle that she had got out at all, that she somehow found the strength to push open a door and not be swept back inside by the water. She swam her way out of the car and managed to drift up to the surface. By the time she put her head back above the water, people were running down to the jetty and the wedding guests pulled her out but it was too late for her mother. They pulled the car out of the water hours later, but her mother's body was gone. They never found it. And that's how she had become so afraid of water. She had almost drowned, and worse, because it was her own mother that had almost done it to her. The person she had trusted most in the whole world. That, more than anything, must have amplified the trauma. I felt like such a bastard putting her through all that again. She said no, that actually somehow she felt stronger now, that some great weight had been lifted from her shoulders, that her fear of the water had always preyed upon her mind, like some great elephant in the room. Living by the sea meant it was forever there, a reminder of a tragedy she had always tried to put to the back of her mind. She forgave me, and in that moment I felt more like I didn't deserve her than ever before. She walked then to the seafront. The tide was not so far in, the waves not too fierce. We took off our shoes and socks and paddled into the water. We rolled up our trousers to our knees and with our hands held tight, we walked that bit further in. The waves lapped at our shins, it was cold but not so cold. There were tears in her eyes, but she was not upset. She was emotional but not afraid. She had faced something terrible from her past and she felt a great relief. We made love that night, spontaneously among the sand dunes. We hoped no one would see us. We were caught up in the moment. We did it without protection. That was so stupid, God knows what we would have done if anything had happened. But at that time, we just felt like part of each other. We faced something together and that we were now forever entwined, emotionally locked together in both past and present. We entered a new phase of peace together, more happy in each other's company than ever before. A new understanding lay between us, a true bond, like we could finish each other's sentences and know what each other was thinking. She didn't have her own strange wavelength. She was here with me, and we were in sync together. Her father clearly had not forgiven me, and he did not apologise for his attack. I was past caring now. I had a new confidence, more self-assurance. I would not cower to him, and we mainly avoided each other's company. And then my parents arrived, still pretending to be happy together. I was glad to see them, but I barely noticed they were there. My mind was only on Lily. She was everything to me now. A week passed before Lily said she'd like to go into the water again. Though she'd always been afraid of it, she'd always been fascinated by the sea and she'd like to swim in it. We went shopping for her first swimsuit. It was black with pink contoured lines, her two favourite colours. 
We went down to the beach late afternoon just as it was becoming quiet and the tourists were going home. We changed under our towels and made another slow walk out into the waves. We progressed slowly, walking with our feet on the ground, swimming a little, and then gradually moved deeper until she could no longer feel the sand and seaweed beneath her soles. She was scared but excited. Her breathing was fast. I splashed her in the face playfully to distract and relax her. She splashed me back and we laughed together. We kissed, kicking gently to keep ourselves afloat. As we swam a little further, untroubled by the mild waves, I dared her to stick her head under the water. It was a big step for her, more of a step than I realised, as I jokingly dipped my head beneath the surface. As I saw her hesitance, I said she didn't have to and she smiled a little. Then she looked down, pinched her nose and just dipped a little beneath the water. She popped her head back out just a few moments later, taking a deep breath and smiling. There was nothing to fear in the ocean, in the water. I said we should try midnight swimming, and always the romantic that appealed to her greatly. We would have to sneak out, though. Her father would not care for her being out so late, even though we were both a matter of weeks from turning sixteen. Despite her age, she'd never actually snuck out before, neither of us had. We felt too old to be doing it. We weren't kids anymore, but a little thrill made the trip that bit more special. We went down to the seafront. The waves were a little more rough, but the air was calm and the steady roar was invigorating and exciting, without being fearsome or frightening. We bought our swimming kits, but decided spur of the moment to go out naked, skinny dipping. The beach was deserted, there was no one to see us. We didn't mean to go out too far, just a little. We bobbed and flowed with the waves, kissed under the moonlight. I told her I loved her, she kissed me and said she loved me too. I teased her, said she was much too slow and would have to work hard to ever get as good at swimming as me. She said she had a swimming pool and she'd get loads of practice in. We splashed each other playfully. A big wave roared over us, a bigger wave than we'd expected. I broke through to the other side, wiped the water out of my eyes and saw she was not there with me. For a moment I worried, said her name nervously until she appeared again above the surface. I smiled, relieved. That was a bigger one than I expected, I said. She nodded and began for a second there, but then she bobbed back beneath the water. I swam closer right to where she was. She came above the water again. I'm caught on something, she said. Something's pulling me. And down she went again. Her face looking upward barely broke the surface of the water. Water poured into her mouth as she cried, help. I reached in and tried to grab hold of her body, but it was already slipping through my hands. I managed to grab hold of one of her arms and found myself pulled beneath the surface. I pulled back and she came towards me, but then she tugged back again, her arm almost slipping from my grip. We sank deeper into the water. She wasn't just caught on something, something was dragging her down. It was dark. Opening my eyes, I could barely see anything in the water except the white of Lily's skin. I couldn't see or tell what was pulling her. I kicked with my feet, giving it everything I got, but I could barely pull her back at all. I could see bubbles escaping from Lily's lips. I could barely hold my breath. Then for a moment, I thought I'd won. Whatever it was that held her seemed to have slipped, I could feel her coming towards me. She was safe, I was going to rescue her. But as I looked again to her pale body in the dark ocean, I saw another figure there with us in the water. Within just a heartbeat, this creature swept a great arm in front of Lily's face, locking its elbow around her neck. Before I could tell what was happening, its other arm appeared, sweeping towards me, swiping at me. A sharp claw cut into my forehead. I felt its nails move into my flesh, and in the moment of shock, I let go. I couldn't help it. 
And in that moment, not only did I let her go, but instinctively I went up for air. I gasped, drawing in oxygen desperately. I noticed red water dripping over my eye. I was bleeding. I didn't worry about that. I just dived back into the water, but in the dark amongst the waves I could see nothing. I swam deep. I swam in circles. I came up for air and I shouted, Lily, Lily! I went down again and I swam and I swam, but there was nothing. She was nowhere. There was no sign of her, no sound. I kept swimming, kept diving. But in even my desperation, I quickly realised it was hopeless. That I couldn't find her, that I couldn't see her. I looked out across the ocean, there was no one. Who could have pulled her under? There was no one there. There was no one there for miles. I swam back to the beach, I could do nothing else. It was deserted and so was the road. Unable to find help, I went to a call box and called 999. In tears, I told them that my girlfriend had been washed out to sea and I could not find her. They responded quickly. A helicopter swept its light across the bay. Police and Coast Guard combed the beach for more than half a mile trying to find a trace of her. They found nothing. Oh God, when her father came down to the beach. He was inconsolable. He went for me again. He was restrained by the police, but by then I was so far gone that I would have let him do it. The best thing in my whole life was gone, and it was my fault. But I'd never taken her into the water. My parents tried to console me, to protect me, but there was nothing they could say or do. They tried to feebly comfort me by saying that they would find her, but I knew they wouldn't. I was arrested. They might have assumed an accident if it were not for the cuts across my forehead. Four cuts, the mark of fingernails, long and vicious. An injury perhaps caused in self-defence, they thought. And no, they didn't believe my story. How could someone else have been there in the ocean, unseen by either of us? I was at the police station until the following morning. I was not ultimately charged, but that was more for a lack of evidence, perhaps my age too. The scars across my forehead were not enough to convict me, but they all thought I was responsible. Gave evidence at the inquest. Death by misadventure was the ultimate verdict, but the scars still prominent were an uncomfortable sticking point. Those days were a blur. I was in such a depression that I didn't seem to know night from day, or one day from another. I know after the accident we stayed in Morecambe for a few days to help the police, staying at a different hotel. I never went back to the Bay Star again. Her father didn't come to the inquest. I never saw him again. Like me, he knew what had really happened. It was as if he'd known all along, had a fear or premonition. Kept thinking back to what he'd said at the pool that day I let her fall in. That she'd never have her. What guilt he must have carried all his life. But by then all kinds of questions were lingering in my mind. Those times when she seemed to be half in her own world. The way she used to stare out over the sea. Could there have been something, something always there hanging over them, threatening to take her away? I'd say that was pretty far-fetched if I'd not seen what I'd seen. I had not seen her snatched from my arms. On that day of the inquest, back in Morecambe, her father wasn't there, but her grandmother was. I remember seeing her leave the hall. She stopped to look at me as she was leaving. I thought for a moment that she was going to come over to me, but instead she turned and left. Did she believe in this supernatural force? Or did she think what everyone else was thinking, that I was a rapist and that I had drowned her granddaughter? this day, I'm not sure what my parents thought. It's always hung over me, the thought that maybe they might think I did it. They said they believed me, but then this look of doubt would wash over their faces. 
How could what I have said been true? What's worse is that it seems like all trace of Lily has slowly disappeared. The letters she wrote to me were destroyed during a flood at my parents' house. What photos I had of her seem to have vanished. My parents never took many anyway, but Lily doesn't seem to be in any of them. The base star is gone now. Luxury flats were being built when I, during one lonely summer afternoon, decided to visit Morecambe. The place is looking a little fresher these days. Some of the peeling paint has gone, the wrecked pier demolished, the shops open again. I don't know what happened to Lily's family. I never heard from them, of course. Maybe her father is still with us. It's possible, but I don't know. The only thing I have left of Lily is my memories. It's as if everything else has been erased. She was the greatest love of my life. Crazy thing is, I only knew her for about 24 weeks, over a period of eight years. Less than half a year accumulatively of my whole existence. But she changed everything. She's an ideal I can't put behind me. None of my other relationships, my other girlfriends, they've never lived up to her. Her body never washed up on the beach. Like a mother, she's forever lost amongst the waves. I've never been visited by her ghost, but she's haunted me my whole life, a dream that's too good to be true. Actually, I lied. I do have one thing to remember her by. I've still got the scars. They're here, just under my fringe. That's why I have my hair like this, so I don't have to look at them too often. Thank you for listening to the New Ghost Stories podcast. Today's story features in the book 11 New Ghost Stories, which is available from Amazon, iTunes and other book retailers. And if you'd like to read the latest New Ghost Stories, visit my substack at davidpaulnixon.substack.com. This podcast is written, presented and produced by David Paul Nixon. If you've enjoyed listening, please support the podcast by leaving a review on any platform and subscribing to hear future releases. You can find out more about New Ghost Stories at my website, newghoststories.com, and read the latest from me on Twitter by following at New Ghost Stories. Next time on the New Ghost Stories podcast, it's our Christmas ghost story, where a man's festive plans are destroyed when his home is flooded and a ghost from the past rises to the surface. So I said she should come out with me and make So I said she should come out with me and take a dip. It would be quiet and relaxing, not like the beach which she su- which which she suggested which which she suggested which she suggested
which she suggested. It will be quiet and relaxing, not like the beach, which she should, which which she should 